0: This is going to be the final series in our year of the New Testament, and we're going to discuss the idea of discipleship, of a disciple. So originally, this word in the Bible just simply means a student, a pupil, a learner. But I think that that term kind of falls short. That definition sort of like leaves us wanting, right? Right. So today, to begin this series, I want to kind of start by trying to define and frame what we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. If we're going to be talking about some of the difficult teachings of Jesus, we've got to understand what is the relationship between Jesus' teachings and His students and His pupils and those that are learning from His teachings. And so, as we look at this definition of learner, student, pupil, For those of us that are disciples of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, does this still describe our selves? Does this still describe our lives, our hearts? Are we still learners? Are we still pupils? Are we still students who are looking to follow, to obey, to learn? You know, as you get older and you go to more schooling, tend to get less and less open to learning, right? There's an old adage that says it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Has anyone ever tried to teach old dogs? Where's Sarah Ward when you need her, right? Um, it's hard to, for sometimes you just get them up off the floor. You know, they're moving around kind of slow. And, you know, that same dynamic can happen to us spiritually where we, it's hard to really want to learn to grow. Sometimes it's hard to just get up off the floor. You feel like, oh, these these elbows, these knees, they're not working so well anymore. But in our spirit, in our hearts, I think this is hopefully what I'm wanting to encourage us to think about, especially for those of us that have maybe been students and pupils for a while, that we really come back to our first love. So in Acts chapter 11, let's read there. This won't necessarily be new or novel for most or some, But it is foundational, and I think it's important for the rest of the things that we're going to be discussing. Acts chapter 11, in verse 18, or I'll start in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. It's interesting there, right? Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he arrived and saw the grace of God and what it had done, he was glad and encouraged He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So as we talk about and try to frame this idea of what a disciple is. Christian, the term Christian, occurs first in the Bible here. And this is uh, something that is quite shocking for people that are new to the Bible, that the word Christian actually only occurs three times in the Bible. And this is the first occurrence of it. And in fact, it's telling us a story about how the term originated in the first place. The term to describe a student, a learner, a pupil, a follower of Jesus, was actually disciple for many, many years. And that term described a person who followed him. They literally left. You can read the gospel accounts when Jesus calls his disciples, when crowds start to follow him. They literally leave what they're doing behind and they follow him around. Some for a little while, some for a long time. And then here in Antioch, in a non-Jewish city, right? A Gentile city. Gentiles give those groups of people the term Christian. They refer to them as a different name, but it's the same group of people. It's still disciples, right? And I think that's important for us today in our context because we're so far removed from this, from the first century in Antioch. We're so far removed from what's going on here that today, you know, disciple isn't really something that's used quite often. Typically the term Christian is more common in our context to refer to someone who believes in Jesus, etc. And sometimes because of that cultural context in America, we can tend to think that there are basically like degrees of Christianity, like degrees of followership. And so typically what I have found and experienced is that most people, when they think of a Christian and a disciple, it doesn't really describe the same person. It's actually two different descriptors to describe two different people kind of at like two different degrees of their followership or their belief or whatever. And so Christian kind of is more of a generic, broad term that sort of just describes people who believe, whatever that means. And then disciple is someone that like, you know, is really serious, they're devout, they're committed. Maybe they're like really trying to actually do what Jesus said. And so they're like two different people. And it's almost as though we think of disciple as like this super saiyan Christian, someone that's like, you know, and regardless of whether or not you want to be like Goku in your dreams, which I do, Christian and disciple are actually the same things, biblically. So again, as we frame where we're going, the hard teachings of Jesus, we've got to understand who is he teaching? Christian and disciple, it's the same person. There are no degrees of Christians, biblically. That's something that we have culturally imported. And while most people, when you press them, they'll agree with that concept in practice, it's still very much that there are degrees and levels of Christians. As you read the Bible, which again, we encourage you to do, and you read the word disciple or Christian or believer or person of the way, or many other names that you find in the New Testament, it's referring to one person, one group of people, a student, a learner, a pupil. Mathetes, Someone who is following, who is obeying. Not just someone who's going to church. Did you know that going to church actually has nothing to do with being a Christian? Did you know that? When... The disciples recall Christians first at Antioch. It had very little to do with this. It had to do with the fact that they looked at these people and they said, wow, they follow this teacher. It had very little to do with the collective gathering, but how they live their lives, a lifestyle. This is important for us as we look to follow as well. So what is disciple Ship. We've talked about what is disciple. How would you define discipleship? Again, another term that is increasing in popularity amongst Western American Christianity. How many of you guys have ever heard of discipleship? How many of you guys have ever been a part of discipleship? How many of you guys have ever been a part of a discipleship group? Or discipleship program? Or discipleship fill in the blank? So this idea of discipleship is actually increasingly popular in American Christianity. This is not like a you know, super weird secluded side thing. Uh, this is something that I think more and more churches and Christian contexts are talking about and referring to, but I think that the terminology is actually not really being used accurately. Because often discipleship in a Christian context, especially in America, is used essentially to mean something similar to mentoring or um, relational connections to help each other be disciples or better disciples, maybe to talk and pray and open up the Bible, maybe to confess sins, that our understanding of discipleship is, is about like being in a group and discipling each other and, you know, helping each other be better disciples or something along those lines, which isn't necessarily incorrect, but it's often shallow and not holistic. Let's look in Luke chapter 14. The English word discipleship is literally a noun that just means the process of being a disciple, the act or activity of being a disciple. So discipleship is not some subset of disciple. It's just simply a present state descriptor of someone being a disciple. Now that could include a small group potentially, but that's not holistically what discipleship is. Luke chapter 14, Jesus starts to really dig into discipleship, the act or activity, the process of being a disciple. To give you context here, verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, Here's the context. Everybody comes into college wanting to be an engineer. And then around their sophomore year, they sign up for classes like organic chemistry, fluids and dynamics, etc. This is what's happening right now. We're in the sophomore year for the engineering class. Many people are traveling with Jesus, traveling. They left. They're not even in necessarily their home city. And all of the difficulties that come with that, Right? We, just, we just traveled to the Outer Banks with two small children for a week. It was a monumental task. For those of you that were wondering, no, it wasn't super relaxing. One of my children got sick in the middle of it, had to go to urgent care and get drugs. And amen, I live in the era of post-penicillin. But still, and these guys had it even rougher. And they're traveling with Jesus. And he turns to them and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Let me just let that sit for a moment. Yes, we have entered into the territory of some of the difficult teachings of Jesus. Yes, he actually said hate. Yes, he's using hyperbole but he's doing it to make a point. He's saying to all these people who are actually going through great difficulty to even be listening to him right now, he says, guess what? You're not my disciples. You're following me. You're wanting to be my student, my pupil, my learner, but let me help you define even further what discipleship is, what the act of you really being a learner is what the act of you being my follower and student really is. It's not just traveling with me. You say, you've got to hate everything in comparison to following me, even your own life. So then, to rub salt in the wound, vis-a-vis how Jesus does, he gives them some analogies, some stories. He tries to contextualize the bomb that he just dropped. And he says, okay, okay, okay. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, right? Any construction guys in here? Any builders in here that build stuff? Okay, one or two, yeah. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. I'm gonna come back to Alex because I saw his hand go up. That just made me think of something. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and was unable to finish. For those of you who don't know, Alex is a contractor and he specializes in you know, geodesic, like glamping style. They're super popular now. Praise on him. The first batch that he made, he sat down and estimated the cost as best he could. And he was not ready for the cost that it was going to take the hours and weeks and months of waiting on this and the permit for that and the, the, the governing body to say you can do this and so much so that people now pay him to help them figure out how to get through all of those processes. He's not even building it. He's just helping them know how to get through the coding process. Somewhat accurate? G- <laughs> Somewhat? And that's just a little bit that I know. And Jesus says, guess what? People who build stuff, they try to sit down and estimate the cost. They try to think it through. You know who else does that? People who go to war. He says, I suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? You know, if your president and governing bodies in America, which is a republic, you want them to consider going to war before they decide to do that. Is that right? Is that a fair assumption? Why? Because at some level, it's probably going to affect you. Some more directly than others. But it's a big deal for a king, a president, a dictator, whoever, to make the decision for all the rest of the people that we're going to war. It could cost you your life. He says, you know what? He's going to sit down and consider. And if he's not able... be victorious. He's going to send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. And so in the same way as the builders, as the kings who are deciding to go to war, he says in the same way, those of you travelers who are following me right now, those of you that do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. How much had they given up? It's impossible to say, because there's a large crowd. There's probably some variance there, right? But certainly everybody had given up at least their time to be standing there right now, at the very least, right? Some of them maybe have given up a lot of time. Maybe they've left jobs, they've left families, they've left cities. Maybe they're poor, broken, destitute. They don't know where their next meal's coming from to learn from this guy. And he turns to them and he says, guess what? You can't handle organic chemistry and he weeds people out. Did you know that Jesus really was not into crowds? I'm becoming more and more convinced that the way that we have traditionally done church is the opposite of how Jesus ran his ministry. We're super into crowds. It inflates our egos, makes us feel good, makes us feel like we're a part of something that's special because there's thousands of other people But if you look closely in the Gospels and how Jesus ran his ministry, anytime the crowds get big, he actually tries to thin them out, intentionally tries to thin them out with things like this. So as we're thinking about disciple, discipleship, the act of being a disciple, this, I think, has to be in clear view. That the act of us being a follower, a pupil, a learner, a student of Jesus, a Christian, right, those words are completely interchangeable. He says, you've gotta be willing to give up everything you have. And I am forced to look at myself in the mirror and in doing so, to ask us to do the same. Is that still our heart? Are we still willing to give up everything? You know what? The longer you follow Jesus, the more costly it gets. You got kids now. You got homes. You got possessions. You've got failing health. Are you willing to give it all up? The master's teachings haven't changed, have our hearts. It's so easy and sometimes so imperceptible for our hearts to drift and for us to become accustomed to religious traditions. And the original love that we had at first that said, I'm willing to follow you to the ends of the earth, like Peter did, I will never abandon you. I will die with you tonight. And yes, our intentions are frail, just like Peter's were. But do we have that kind of zeal? Do we have that kind of motive? Are we that in love with Jesus and so enthralled with him that when we read this, we still go, Jesus, it's worth it, I'll leave it all. I hate even my own life. Or do we end up somehow, some way, through some sort of time lapse, or maybe this was part of the gospel we originally received that we just follow Jesus when it's convenient to fit into the rest of our lives? Jesus says, that person cannot be my disciple. To put Bible words for Bible things, that person cannot be a Christian. I'm becoming more and more convinced that less and less people who think they're Christians actually are. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the gospel that people have received here in the West by and large has been a lie. It has been at least half true at best. Because when I interact with people who believe that they're Christians, they have hardly ever heard Jesus' teachings on organic chemistry. They've heard God's love, as Tony shared about, which is absolutely true. They've heard about the grace and mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins that he offers, which is absolutely true. But it comes at a price. How many of you guys are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Okay, he was a famous Christian thinker and writer in the uh, early 20th century. Famous probably mostly for his work called um, Discipleship. Um, Thank you. The Cost of Discipleship. Thank you. Um, And he wrote in an era, obviously in World War II, where it was tumultuous and dangerous. Everybody's a little freaked out across the planet, right? Kind of transport ourselves back there. And he says that salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And I would like to amend that personally, because I think that this could be a bit misleading for our context. I would say that salvation is freely given, but discipleship will cost you your life. You know, we discussed this earlier in another series earlier this year. God's love is not free. It costs him a lot. And according to the Bible, it says it's going to cost us a lot, too. In fact, Jesus just said it's going to cost us everything. So salvation is not free. It's quite costly. But it is freely given. It is freely extended. God's love is not unconditional. And if that's the first time that you've heard this, this is revealing what I'm talking about. That the gospel that you have received is half-baked. God's love is not unconditional. It's unconditioned, meaning we didn't earn it. We couldn't deserve it, but it's not unconditional as though it has no strings attached. No, it has plenty of strings attached. God says, I'm going to freely pardon you and extend grace to you when you don't deserve it, but it's conditioned on you completely and willingly submitting to me. Being willing to give up your life. That's not unconditional. That has some pretty strong conditions to it. Unfortunately, I find person after person, community after community that have received a gospel that is completely unconditional. There's no conditions on their lives, which leads to Christians having no transformation, looking like Jesus, not at all. And to a watching, dying, lost world, It looks pretty pathetic, just like it looked to me when that was the only gospel that I had received. And I said, yeah, let's go to the youth group and sing kumbaya. Ah, Let's get high before we go. Cool, let's pick up some girls while we go there. We're all saved. That's the cultural context that I grew up in. And then I actually read the Bible at some point in my life. Spoiler alert, don't do that if you don't want your world to get rocked. If you want to keep living in the la-la land that you're living in of God's love is unconditional, don't read the Bible. It will disrupt that. Now, this is not a works-based theology. This doesn't mean that our works, therefore, merit or warrant God's unconditioned love. It's unconditioned, meaning that we didn't prompt him to do it. 1 John 4 says that we love because God first loved us. That's the message of the gospel. God took the first step. He took the first step toward rescuing humanity, but he does require something of us. All people are not going to heaven. All roads do not lead to God. There will be consequences for those of us that do not decide to obey and to embrace his love on his conditions. you can see why crowds got thinned out, right? So as we look at disciple and discipleship moving into the teachings of Jesus, this is an important building block because we can't get to the teachings of Jesus if we don't understand properly how they relate to us. Because if we keep passing the teachings of Jesus through the filter of, well, it's all good, God's, love is unconditional, then they won't have any impact. We will never really truly intend to even obey because we'll fall back to this lie that says, God's gonna have mercy and forgiveness. It doesn't really matter. We're all gonna be okay. It's like, well, no, actually, if you read the Bible, it says something quite different. says, actually, no, you have the choice to rebel. You have the choice to disobey and there will be consequences, even eternally. The Bible's a scary book. Did y'all know that? At this stage of my life, I'm now wrestling with how to shepherd young children in my own family and at the community at large. And I'm wrestling with this is not a book for young children. It's just not. Now, I think we got to figure it out and we got to tie it on our wrists and put it on our doorposts and we got to figure it out and do our best. But listen, listen, Jesus loves me, this I know is not enough for a person's lifetime. At some point, you gotta sign up for organic chemistry and you gotta look at Jesus' teachings honestly. And I wanna invite us as we move into this series that if you have not done that, don't be afraid. Let's do it together. Because while Jesus' teachings are hard, they are also the most rewarding, fruitful, and meaningful thing that any human being could ever do with their existence on earth. I firmly believe that. No one is going to obey perfectly. That's where we fall on the grace of God. That's where we extend grace and forgiveness to one another and we spur one another on towards loving good deeds. So, as we embark on this series, I want us to keep in mind a few things. One, When we read the New Testament, as we're finishing out the New Testament this year, we must allow the scriptures to define what a Christian is, not just what the cultural context or religious soup that we swim in to define those things. We must allow the scriptures to define our understandings of what it means to be a Christian, to be saved, to be forgiven, and what our lives should look like. And that when we read the term disciple, or we think about discipleship, the act of being a follower, then that means that we're actively obeying Jesus. We're doing the things that help us to obey Jesus, that we're actively cutting out and foregoing the things that hinder us from following Jesus. If there's one thing that you can do today, from this time, that would be what I would encourage identify one thing in your life that's hindering you from following something that you know Jesus said. Identify it and get rid of it today. Cut it out, gouge it out, throw it away. Get some help, talk to someone. We've got ministries galore. Everybody's got a help group. We've got therapists. We've got all kinds of resources. But you have to decide that you want to be a disciple, that I want to be a disciple It's not just being religious, partaking in religious activities. Please, please, please don't buy into the lie that you coming to church makes you a disciple. It's a lie. Me coming to church doesn't make me one. Now, if I'm coming to church as a disciple with a heart to obey and follow, then amen. This can be great it can be beneficial, it can be fruitful, it can be God glorifying and edifying for us. But if we're coming without that heart, without that mindset, it can radically shift into something very different. This is where the sober warnings of Jesus come into my mind, like in Matthew seven, where he's dealing with the very religious people. And they say, and he says, listen, this is what it's gonna be like on the last day. He says, check this out, let me tell you a story. On the last day, Religious people are going to come to me, and they're going to say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer, and they will be cast aside. I told you the Bible's a scary thing. You cannot read a passage like that if you have any desire to follow Jesus and not just be stopped dead in your tracks and go, wow, I don't want to hear that wow, I don't want to hear that, and sobered at the fact that it is going to happen, that it is possible for us, you and me, to be deceived and get to the last day and be disappointed. But Lord, but Lord, what would that be for you? What would you, if you were cast aside on the last day, what would you want to call to your defense? What would you look to the Lord to prove your innocence? I think that that question for me is helpful for me to think about my own discipleship. I'm not gonna venture off into that. I'm not gonna give you the answer tied up in a bow. I'm just gonna let it hang there as uncomfortable as Jesus did in Matthew 7. Good luck we will help each other. Another thing that I want us to keep in view as we get ready to move forward in this series is that we've gotta remember that although for some of us, we began following Jesus at some point, we became his student and pupil, we had the heart of hating our father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even our own life, even though that happened at one point in our life, it's not guaranteed to stay there. That we have to actively keep repenting, actively keep deciding to follow, actively keep putting ourselves in the position of a learner which ultimately implies humility we can never stop becoming more like him just because we started becoming more like him we can never stop becoming more like him and that's hard and i think it's worth saying at this point that according to the scriptures no one starts following jesus accidentally This is also, I believe, fundamentally woven into the foundational lie of the American gospel. And that is that people osmosis into being Christians. People accidentally become Christians. People become Christians because they were born into a Christian family, not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, one becomes a Christian disciple, follower, learner, student, because they actively choose to follow. And they know where the teacher is going. Jesus said, isn't a builder gonna sit down and estimate the cost? Isn't a king who's going to war gonna sit down and estimate the cost? In my view, fundamental to becoming a Christian is Jesus says, you've gotta consider it. There's something to be considered. And what is it that you've gotta consider? It's gonna cost you everything. If you've never considered that, then what did you start learning? What did you start following? What did you... What pupiling did you do? Again, it's a faulty message that you just kind of are a Christian, not according to Jesus. And so I'm concerned. A lot of our friends, a lot of our family, a lot of our communities, they've never really learned about being a disciple according to Jesus. They have been given degrees of engineering. And they never had to take organic chem. They never had to take fluids and thermodynamics. I don't know about you, but those aren't the guys I want building my structures, you know what I'm saying? Todd helped me put up a structure on my home to put a, hang a swing bed, you know? And we're like, we need to over-engineer this. I got little ones, you know, everything needs to be rated at like 80,000 pounds. You know, he, he texts me after we did this project, which was far more grueling than I ever wanted it to be. Todd, thank you so much, and for all the men that helped me. And he said, you know, I have all these extra screws. It made me think that we didn't put enough in. Can you check, please? And I went back and I looked and I was like, yep, we didn't put enough screws in there. He's like, listen, for safety's sake, just over-engineer that thing. I could keep putting my family on a swing bed that has two screws instead of four. Will it collapse? Is it worth it? For some of us, that's like our Christian experience. Oh, we've got two screws up there, it's good enough. But I will tell them away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. This is my concern, is that some of us have simply embraced a false gospel, that we've become Christians through some sort of osmosis or just cultural context that we're in, some sort of ill-defined nebula of feelings and good intentions but we've never really looked at the word intently. And I'm also concerned that for others of us, we've been presented with the gospel of discipleship, the gospel that is holistic and scriptural, and we became Jesus' pupil, but we have drifted. We've stopped following, and we've replaced following him with religious activity, perhaps like going to a Sunday church service. And so my hope and my prayer is that as we go through this together and as we get into the word of God, that we would be called back to follow him again, that we would remember our first love, that we would be willing to give up everything, to hate even our own lives. And that if that has never happened for us, that we would be moved by the love and grace of God to be willing to give up everything because no matter what we give up, God has always given more. We can never outgive God. And so although we're in a series about the difficult teachings of Jesus, I know that in my own life, when I have found myself in this place of difficulty, that's when there's the greatest opportunity. There's a place of refinement and it leads to our peace and joy and fruitfulness, right? Hebrews 12 says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's God loving you. And guess what it's gonna do? It's gonna lead to a harvest of righteousness and peace. So all those things are difficult and the Bible uses the analogy of the of the you know the refinement of gold the crucible the melting and purification of precious metals as to what God's love is like in our lives as he changes us and shapes our character and changes our minds and our hearts and so yes it feels difficult if gold had feelings i'm sure it wouldn't like being melted and we don't like it either but I want to encourage us to persevere. Let's do it together and know that God's love is what is purifying us because he cares for us. God isn't trying to make things hard for difficulty's sake. Maybe we felt that way about our organic Kim teacher. I have felt that way about certain classes. Like you're just making this hard for hard's sake, right? This actually has no real yield. That's not God. God never puts us through difficulty for His own pleasure or enjoyment, but for our good because He loves us. And so as we continue to move towards this microchurch initiative, as we continue to move towards this greater decentralization of what we call church, as we move and remove some of the pieces on the board that I discussed a couple Thursdays ago, I'm excited I'm excited to see what God is going to continue to do as we truly follow Jesus, as we break away from and try to minimize some of our religious conditioning. And we're put and thrust into these environments where it's just me and the Lord. And I have to decide, am I going to follow? Am I going to obey or not? I believe there's great opportunity here. And I believe God is priming all of us to be even more fruitful more filled with joy and peace as we follow Jesus than ever before. And as we continue to spread this biblical gospel of discipleship throughout the Western Carolina region. If you're new, maybe this is your first time, I love you. I'm sorry this was your first time. Please keep coming. Because I believe that God wants to do something in you and in me beyond just cultural religion, but where we can see people's lives, starting with our own, truly transformed. And when that happens, you'll want to help others to experience it too. That was my life. I was the guy sitting in the pew, coming to church for the first time after having lived in a culturally conditioned religious environment, and I finally met Jesus, and my life turned upside down. People, my family, my friends literally didn't know what had happened to me. I want to have other people experience that same thing, and I know that you do as well. Let's pray for God's power to do that.